The best estimates we have, the National Center for State Courts estimates that in at least 75% of civil cases in the United States, at least one party lacks counsel. Hello, this is Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review, and I'm your host, Adam Hossein. On this episode of Briefly, we'll discuss the growing concerns over access to justice in our country, as well as some potential solutions. As we'll begin to see, the number of individuals facing civil legal matters in this country is extensive. Worse yet, only a fraction of those problems will ever get addressed. In many areas of law, like the housing or employment context, if the legal problems faced by individuals are ever addressed at all, it's unlikely that all the parties will be represented by lawyers throughout the dispute. In this episode, we'll talk about the scope of the access to justice gap, some of its underlying problems, ways in which states have addressed the situation, and what the future holds. Our guest for this podcast to discuss these access to justice concerns and more is Professor Anna Carpenter, Professor of Law and Director of Clinical Programs at the University of Utah Law School. Hi, Professor Carpenter, and thank you so much for joining us today for our episode of Briefly. We really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm really glad you're interested in this issue. Before jumping into the nuances of the topic, I was hoping we could go over some of the terminology. Now, there's been a lot of discussions happening in this country, both in legal and policy circles, about the access to justice gap and the ability to disseminate legal services at an affordable price. Can we talk a little bit about what people mean when they say access to justice and what exactly is this access to justice gap? The question of what do we mean when we say access to justice, the answer to that depends on who you ask and sort of the perspective that that they're coming from. I will say that my own thinking on this has been really heavily influenced by the work of a sociologist and sociolegal scholar, Dr. Rebecca Sandifer. She's at Arizona State. She's a MacArthur genius. All of us who work in the access to justice space as academics and as a lot of practitioners really stand in the shadow of her work. And one of the insights that she's brought to the conversation in the United States around this question of what do we mean when we say access to justice is that traditionally lawyers have thought of access to justice as unsurprisingly access to lawyers, right? So what does it mean to get to get access to justice? Well, do you have a lawyer's services were your legal problems addressed in the context of formal law in a court setting? And the conversation in the U.S. for a long time, or if you're talking to lawyers about it, is framed in terms of unmet legal needs that should otherwise be met by lawyers. And one of the things that, that Dr. Sandifer has really inserted into the conversation that I'm completely persuaded by, and I think many of us who do this work are, is that we can instead think about access to justice as access to just resolutions of justice problems, right? So we have this framework of of rules, of laws that we use to structure society, our relationships, our um, intimate relationships, our uh, economic relationships through work, people's relationship to the government, neighbor's relationship to one another, all of these things, we have we have sort of laws that structure um, how we should behave and treat each other in our country. And the insight that Dr. Sandifer offers us is to say, you know, one way to get a just resolution is to have lawyer representation, maybe through in a court case, maybe in something that doesn't actually see a court. 
But another way to do it would be to offer some information or services short of lawyer services (laughs) that ends up having a just result. So an example of that might be, let's say I have a habitability issue. My landlord is not, you know, sort of keeping up the property that I'm renting. There's mold, there's, um, you know, rodent infestations, bug infestations, and it's, you know, under the law of the state that I live in, it would be the, it's the landlord's duty to take care of those things, let's say, right? And one way for me to resolve that is to go to a lawyer to write a letter to tell my landlord to fix the things. Another way is to provide something else short of lawyer services that gets me to the same place of asking the landlord to solve that that problem and address it. And if I don't go to a lawyer, but let's say I have some information, I have some guidance about how to structure a habitability letter to my landlord, and I write that letter and I hand it to them, and then they fix the issue, that's a just resolution to a problem and a lawyer or a court didn't need to be involved. And so, um, you know, I think the conversation about access to justice in the U.S. these days, I think is moving in a healthy direction of recognizing some civil justice problems need a lawyer services, certainly, but many do not. And let's start talking about what the differences are between those things and coming up with more creative and different ways to try to solve problems outside of taking them to lawyers. That makes a lot of sense. And could you also give us a quick example of what some of these non-lawyer-based services look like? Like in that landlord example, if someone was having difficulties and troubles, where could they turn to get the help that they need? I think the important thing to think about broadly is, as a sort of a frame for this, is there are surely lots of different ways that people could resolve their civil justice problems short of seeing a lawyer. And that it is probably the case that we need to take a, a lot of different approaches and offer lots of different options because we we don't know all of the answers as to what exactly is the most effective thing, right? So, so that creativity and experimentation and testing different types of services seems really important in this space. But a concrete example would be an organization based in New York called Just Fix. And Just Fixed has created... Essentially, you can use your mobile phone to take a picture of the habitability problem in your apartment. And then JustFix uses an AI-based, you know, technology-based system to then generate the letter that you need to give to your landlord. And there are many other interventions that, that JustFix is working on that sort of similarly leverage technology to make it very easy and accessible to do the thing that you need to do to try to get to that just outcome. Another example from New York, this is in the context of an actual lawsuit in the context of eviction cases, is a court navigator program. There's a couple of different versions of this program, but in essence, it's training non-lawyers to sort of not to give legal advice, which is prohibited in New York, but to provide legal information to help people understand how to fill out forms, um, understand how the eviction process works, And that program has been really successful in helping people avoid eviction. So we can understand that the access to justice gap is a big problem in our country. But what is the scope of that problem? Like how many Americans are actually falling in this access to justice gap? The scope of civil justice problems in America is massive. So different ways of sort of thinking about the the data based on sort of the best estimates we have would be 
that every American confronts at least one civil justice problem in the course of a year. Another way to think about that is that there are somewhere around 100 million, 150 million justice problems in the United States each year. And this is data that come from Dr. Sandifer. And so that's on the order of, you know, tens of millions of Americans experiencing civil justice problems. And what we also know is that lower income people, people of color, people who are vulnerable or marginalized in some way are more likely to confront civil justice problems and less likely to receive help with those problems as compared to white people, more wealthy people, and certainly corporations. What does it look like to face these civil justice problems and where's the disconnect? Are people not recognizing the legal problems that they face or is it even knowing that they have a problem that the price of legal services is just too expensive and thus unobtainable? So so one way to to come at this is to and, and again this is this is in reference to Dr. Sandifer's work. She did some research that that showed us that People in the United States who have civil justice problems, the biggest reason, the most, the most common reason why they don't seek out legal assistance to solve those problems is not because of cost. Cost is part of the picture, but actually that there's sort of a threshold issue, which is that when people have civil justice problems, they don't think of them as being legal. They think of them as problems <laughs> that people have, right? I am having a fight with my neighbor about, you know, my dog is encroaching on their property. I am a sibling of someone who is disabled. I need to somehow have a way to be able to make decisions for them and have have sort of guardianship over them to be able to take care of them. My boss isn't paying me the wages that I'm owed, or I did a bunch of overtime and I'm not getting, I'm not getting paid the money that I think I should be paid. People don't think in their brain, oh, I have a civil justice problem. I should probably go to law, go to a lawyer, go to a court to try to fix this. And so that's sort of a a threshold issue. We know that a small percentage of the sort of universe of civil justice problems that people experience ever make it to courts. A larger proportion will land in the hands of lawyers somewhere around a quarter but pretty much everything else goes unaddressed by formal law. For some of those problems, they certainly don't, they may not need to see a lawyer or a court to have a resolution that is fair and consistent with the laws that that we've used to structure our society. But for some subset of those problems, something, something additional, maybe short of lawyer services might be needed to ensure a just resolution. And the other thing that I'll just tag is to just define what we mean when we talk about civil justice problems. So these are things like things that have to do with work and income. So wage theft, discrimination, bankruptcy, foreclosure, debt, consumer debt, medical debt, civil justice problems also live in sort of the most intimate spaces in our lives in terms of our relationships with our family and people we care about. So divorce, custody, guardianship. They also have a strong relationship to our health and um, physical well-being. So physical safety, like domestic violence issues fall into this space, health insurance, public benefits, 
and housing, of course, right, which has really come to the fore of public consciousness, which in the context of COVID, because of all of the issues around eviction that have really sort of gotten a lot of coverage. So I think people are much more aware of that these days than they might have been otherwise. So is this a new phenomenon? Has the access to justice gap been something that just came up in the past 20 or 30 years? Or has it been something that's been pretty pervasive throughout our country's history? So one answer to the question is, we don't really know. Another answer to the question is, yes, it's getting worse. So when I say we don't really know, what I mean is that we don't have a history in the United States of collecting data about people's experience of civil civil justice problems, right? So, So that's one piece that literally empirically, there's a dearth of information. But there are some things that we do know. So, for example, we know that economic inequality is on the increase in America, right? We know that corporate power is also increasing and people's interactions contractually with corporate entities, right? Think about the number of consumer contracts that you are and I are a part of right now in our lives. And one of the ways of thinking about this, and there's a scholar named Jillian Hadfield who's written quite a bit on this. She has a fairly well-known book that sort of argues that we live in a law-thick world, that legal complexity has in fact increased, right, and is increasing, that we live in a world that is controlled by very complex sets of laws that affect us. And so, Yes, the lack of access to justice is increasing as complexity increases. Another thing that we know is that 40 years ago in state civil courts, in civil justice matters that actually made it to court, the vast majority of parties had lawyers. And what we know now, based on, again, the sort of the best estimates we have in a, in a sort of universe of lacking data, but the best estimates we have, the National Center for State Courts estimates that In at least 75% of civil cases in the United States, at least one party lacks counsel. One of the ways that that looks today, if you think about state courts as sort of a pie, about 25% of that pie is domestic or family issues. So divorce, custody, guardianship, domestic violence. And in those cases, the best data we have suggests that upwards of 80 to 90%, if not more, of all parties across both sides of cases lack representation, right? So there's there's a balance in that there's a, a very often pro se parties going up against pro se parties, unrepresented parties, but across the board, the vast, vast majority of people in those cases lack counsel. In the rest of the, the pie, sort of the other 75%, roughly, the bulk of that is contract cases, And that's things like foreclosure, eviction, and debt, consumer debt, medical debt. And in those cases, it is typical for the defendant who's being sued to be unrepresented. And for the plaintiff, who's typically a corporation or an individual with some means, right, means enough to, in the case of a landlord, be a property owner, the plaintiff side typically has representation. And so we see this massive imbalance of representation in those cases. You mentioned that the problem is getting worse. What's exacerbating the issue? From where I sit, one of the perspectives that I take on this is to to connect it back to economic inequality. 
one of the things that we've seen in the United States over the last few decades is really a, a massive disinvestment in the social safety net. So we have, you know, wages, our real wages are depressed, workers' wages are depressed. We know that they are they're decreasing when compared to the cost of living. And at the same time, the social safety net has shrunk, is shrinking. And so all of those economic pressures create a situation where people are more likely to run into problems where, like in the contract example, they cannot uphold their end of an agreement to pay for a thing that they said that they would pay for. And so, yeah, so I think for me, it really ties back to inequality. And at the same time, if you are vulnerable, economically stressed, you're probably not going to be able to do a very good job of advocating for yourself, figuring out how to solve your legal problem in a way that is just, and certainly you can't afford a lawyer's services. So you mentioned that many parties are going to court unrepresented and that there's been an increase in the amount of pro se cases. What does that look like for a layperson on the ground having to deal with these issues in court? Are they able to navigate court procedures with ease? Are courts and judges even equipped to deal with these pro se litigants at all? So the question of how unrepresented people experience state courts is a really important one, given um, the huge population of people who have to go to court unrepresented in the U.S. each year. And I think an important thing to think about when we think about state courts is to understand that these institutions were designed by lawyers for lawyers. They were designed for adversarial contests between equally matched lawyers advocating for their clients on either side of the case and wielding procedural tools and substantive law to you know, achieve an outcome for their, a positive outcome for their client, right? That is the way that the system is set up. You're, you know, you, you've taken CivPro, you're a third year law student, you've taken CivPro. I mean, how intuitive was civil procedure? Exactly. It's, it's hard to navigate. Civil procedure is not exactly intuitive, right? So we designed these systems for lawyers and now in the state court context, by and large, the users are unrepresented people. And the, it's, a it's a design problem, right? That's one way of thinking about it. And so how do unrepresented people do in this context? Not, not very well, <laughs> it, it turns out. And certainly courts have made some efforts to try to address the needs of unrepresented people. So a number of courts, you know, many courts have self-help centers where you can go and get, you know, a, a court authorized form that you can fill out that sort of walks you through the elements of a claim or a defense. And maybe there's someone there who's a non-lawyer staff person who can tell you where to go and file that at the clerk's office, right? But but by and large, those those services are still really limited. So I actually want to lean into some research that I've done, and I can, I'm going to give you some examples of the kinds of things that unrepresented people experience in civil courts. So some colleagues and I, and those colleagues are Colleen Shanahan, Jessica Steinberg, and Alex Mark, we conducted a multi-jurisdictional research project that looked at three different jurisdictions, and we sat in domestic violence protective order dockets in these um, three different jurisdictions for hundreds of hours, and recorded everything that happened, all of the interactions between judges and litigants. And what we were curious about is one of the proposed solutions to the challenge of unrepresented people in state courts is the idea that judges 
can help people. Judges can provide accommodations, assistance, information that can help litigants make their case, right? Have their day in court. And we were curious about how that's actually working. And we wanted to look across jurisdictions to see if there were any differences. And what we found, I'll give one example of one of the findings, and that is that the judges we observed rarely explained things to litigants, even when litigants asked, and they used jargon, you know, complex legal jargon broadly and consistently. So I'll read you some examples from this study, and these are examples of jargon. So this is all the judge judges speaking. So... When she files a protective order, the judge will listen. And if she makes a prima facie case, the judge issues it. Another judge said, you have the burden of proof. Provide me with the factual predicate for the relief you seek in this case. So what happened and when, how it affected you, and what relief you're seeking. In another case, a judge said, the defendant can file a motion to set aside the default, but just filing the motion doesn't automatically set it aside. Right? And on and on and on. So, you know, we found that though there is this sort of baseline assumption in the, in, in the access to justice community that judges can help unrepresented people, we did not find them to be particularly helpful. And that's not to say that we're necessarily coming down on these judges because, you know, this wasn't the thing that they thought they were going to be doing when they became judges, right? And query whether they have sufficient training and information to provide the kind of assistance that litigants might need. But what we observed is that, in fact, in these state court cases, parties weren't getting explanations. They were hearing lots of jargon that they probably didn't understand. And so unrepresented people have a pretty tough time in court. I could only imagine even legal terms that seem simple and straightforward, like stating a claim in order to survive a motion to dismiss, takes weeks for first-year law students to understand. Going through Twombly and Iqbal and all those confusing legal cases, I'm sure it's super complex for any lay individual to grapple with. Yeah. Another another example that sort of gets to that, a, a common thing that we heard was um, how parties could prove their cases. So what's the standard of proof? So this statement is indicative of something we commonly heard. So the judge saying, this is not a criminal court, it's civil. So the standard is preponderance of the evidence, not reasonable doubt. You know, so even and then even if you understood what that means. So, A, do you understand the difference between civil and criminal? That's a big question, whether anybody would understand that who isn't currently a lawyer or in law school. Second, understanding what it means to have a burden of proof. Third, understanding what kind of burden of proof that is. Right. What level of proof is required. And then even if you understood all of those things. How would you operationalize them, you know, given the issues at play in your case? Right? Now, this might be a strange question, but are there states that are better to be a pro se litigant in or better to have a civil justice problem in? Perhaps some states are better prepared to help pro se litigants with information or to navigate court or through some other means. So one way to look at this from a data-driven perspective is to lean on the work of the Justice Index, which is a project currently housed at Fordham Law School. And the Justice Index uses a variety of measures, including things like what are the ethical rules that judges follow 
that, that states have asked judges to follow when it comes to pro se parties. Do they explicit, explicitly authorize, for example, that judges helping unrepresented people doesn't violate their duty of impartiality, right? So this is a, this is a change in the judicial canons that some states have made, other states haven't. So the justice index looks at that, gives it a weight. They look at things like, does the jurisdiction have simplified court forms that lay people can use to fill out to, you know, state a claim or a defense. And so there's a range of different metrics that the Justice Index offers, and then they rank states accordingly. And we do see that there are differences. Um, So to reference, you know, a jurisdiction that I used to live in, I used to live in Oklahoma. And in Oklahoma, there's only one area of law, at least the last time I checked, which was a year and a half ago, um, there's only one area of law where parties have access to simplified court forms, and that's actually in protective order cases, and it's only petitioners. In other jurisdictions, such as California and New York, simplified court forms are more commonplace across many different areas of law, right? So there certainly are differences across jurisdictions. So if I'm understanding our discussion correctly, there are a handful of roadblocks in the status quo. There are legally underserved areas, undersupplied areas of practice, and groups of people who are unaware that they're facing legal problems at all. And there seems to be a few different camps of people in the literature, however, that are advocating for different solutions to those above problems. Can you talk a little bit about those proposed solutions to addressing the access to justice gap? So in in terms of how we solve the problem of, of, you know, how we get people um, just resolutions to their civil justice problems, one place, one thing that we're seeing in the United States right now is movements to change the way that legal practice is regulated. Utah, the state that I actually currently um, am proud to call home, was the first state last year to step out and make some really massive regulatory changes. Arizona followed with some changes of its own and other states are discussing it. So when I say regulatory reform of legal practice, what I mean is, so like as a law student, you you mentioned that you're taking professional responsibility. So you know from professional responsibility that the bar regulates lawyers, so bar associations. And actually it's Courts make the rules and sort of give bar associations the authority to sort of manage and enforce those rules, right? And so there's this sort of bucket of rules enforced by bar associations that control legal practice and define legal practice. And then outside of that, there are unauthorized practice of law rules that in some states criminalize and in some states create civil penalties for non-lawyers, people who are not barred who, for example, give legal advice or engage in other aspects of the practice of law. So we have sort of these two bodies of law, the professional conduct rules that govern legal practice and unauthorized practice of law rules. And taken together, you could think of that as um, a system of rules that creates a pretty uh, thorough monopoly on legal practice for lawyers in the United States. And one of the things that's interesting to look at is certainly when I was coming up through law school and into my legal career, the fact that non-lawyers couldn't give legal advice was sort of just taken for granted. Like, of course that's true, right? But it turns out in other countries, the practice of law is organized and, and structured in very different ways. So in the United Kingdom, for example, anybody can give legal advice. 
And it's been that way for a very long time. So you can go down to your neighborhood legal advice center where a non-lawyer who is really skilled at, for example, writing wills can do your will for you. Something that in the United States, they would be prohibited from doing unless they were barred. And, and importantly, barred in the state where they were practicing law, right? Because this is another layer of this is that the regulation of legal practice, both on the UPL side and the rules of professional conduct side is, is done on a state-by-state basis. So we have this massive monopoly over legal services and a place that the conversation has been moving in, in recent years and that Utah's moves are reacting to is the idea that if we're going to increase access to civil justice, we might need to open up that space and allow people who don't have JDs or haven't passed a bar exam to do, to engage in some aspects of legal practice. And those are the moves that we're seeing. So what Utah has done is to create what they're calling a legal regulatory sandbox. The actual official name of the entity that runs the sandbox is the Office of Legal Services Innovation. And this is an office within the Utah court system. And I talked, I spoke a little bit earlier about sort of the bar and this sort of bucket of the lawyer monopoly that's regulated by the bar a way to think about the sandbox office or the office of legal services innovation is that it is a regulator, a regulatory entity that the court has authorized as it does the bar to regulate a segment of the legal services market. Can you give us some details about how that sandbox program works? So in Utah, this office of legal services innovation has been authorized to take applications from individuals or entities that want to provide new types of legal services or provide legal services in new ways. So for example, one of the things that that has really been driving a conversation about regulatory reform that is very market-based is the notion that we need in the legal sector outside investment, right? We need investors who who don't have lawyer brains to come into this space and help us to innovate and figure out how to provide legal services in new ways that are more efficient, that are more beneficial to the consumer. So the argument that we need outside investment is a a big piece of this. Another layer of that is the idea of non-lawyer ownership. So currently in, in most jurisdictions in the U.S., there are rules that bar lawyers and non-lawyers from going into business together. And another version of that is technology, right? So using artificial intelligence to provide legal services. Another version of something that could exist in the sandbox is a non-lawyer, for example, executing a will for someone, right? Doing something that they're currently prohibited from doing. So the sandbox takes applications from people or entities who are interested in providing some sort of legal service in a way that violates those existing rules. And the sandbox looks at the application and does a risk assessment and sort of looks at what, how harmful do we think this could be to consumers, which is a very different way of regulating as compared to how lawyers are regulated now. And then makes a determination as to whether that entity or person should be allowed to, to operate. And the Sandbox office makes a recommendation to the Utah Supreme Court, and then the court ultimately makes the decision of who gets authorized. Um, The Sandbox uh, will be operating for a two-year trial period, and so we're sort of at the beginning of that right now. Another space 
for innovation and changes in the way legal services provide is in the context of licensing paraprofessionals or licensing non-lawyers, depending on how you want to think about it. So the Washington State really led this out with Triple LT program that was actually recently shut down. And that authorized paraprofessionals who had passed a test and had a certain number of hours of legal legal experience to provide services to clients in the context of family law cases. And they could do most of the things that lawyers could do short of representing a client in court and arguing before making a legal argument before a judge. Utah, a couple of years ago, created its own paraprofessional program called the Licensed Paralegal Practitioner Program, or LPP. That program used Washington as a model, but has lower barriers to entry in terms of the amount of testing, the expense, the time necessary. And Utah's LPPs currently can be authorized to provide services to clients in family law, in housing issues, and in debt cases. And so that program is ongoing. Arizona has its own version of uh, paraprofessional licensing that it is launching. And Arizona also recently decided and announced that the state is doing away with the existing rule 5.4 that bars non-lawyer ownership and creating a new system where what's called alternative business structures or partnerships you know, between lawyers and non-lawyers or wholly non-lawyer owned businesses can apply to the court for certification to be an official ABS and be authorized to do business and provide legal services in Arizona. So that's sort of the lay of the land in terms of regulatory reform. And then other states such as California, New York, Connecticut are talking about developing their own versions of those programs. What's interesting to me, and nodding back to the conversation we had earlier, is that these programs aren't just about expanding legal aid or bringing in new lawyers to underserved areas. In fact, they have nothing to do with lawyers at all. In your mind, why are we moving away from these lawyer-based solutions and exploring new realms? So I think one slightly flippant yet also honest answer to the question of why are we thinking of ways of providing legal services that don't involve lawyers is that we've done a pretty poor job as lawyers of meeting what we have long upheld as our obligation, right? Our, you know, we have the right to practice law and, you know, we, there's lots of lofty language about how the responsibility that we have to the public, you know, to provide access to justice and ensure the rule of law. But the reality is that we haven't done a very good job of that. And people who are interested in creating change in this space see and argue, and I am certainly among those people, that it is time to open up access to legal services, information about law, the ability to advocate for oneself and one's community to really to democratize that to take law out of the hands exclusively of lawyers and allow other people to wield legal tools and engage in legal advocacy to protect their own interests or the interests of their community. I often think of it in the United States context. It just, I was a legal services lawyer. I was a legal aid lawyer and the culture that then this is not, you know, to knock legal aid providers, but you know, just the reality of the culture that I came up in, in that context was we sort of, we really jealously guarded our knowledge of the law, our ability to talk to our clients about 
their legal rights and how to take action on legal issues. And I think there's an emerging recognition that that kind of hoarding of legal knowledge and access isn't necessary. It's a choice. It's a way that we've chosen to structure the rules in the, in the United States. There's some quite a bit of evidence that suggests that it's not necessary. And so let's make a choice to change it and to create new systems that allow many more different types of people to wield tools of law. At this point, I'm convinced. I think that there's a problem with how our legal system is operating and that the monopolization of legal advice and programming seems truly problematic. It also seems important that we expand the access to non-lawyers in some way, whether that's with a licensing program or maybe we come up with an interesting idea with the sandbox program. But I guess my question is, is this enough? Or is there still a lot for us to accomplish before we can actually close the access to justice gap? What can we as lawyers, law students, members of the general public do to alleviate this gap? Oh, goodness. <laughs> That's a, a, big, a big question. I mean, so in short, I think we're at the beginning right? The, the historical moment that we're living in in the United States when it comes to civil justice, access to civil justice and civil law, is that we're at the very beginning of what I hope will be a massive historical change in how we structure um, access to law, legal services. And so what there is to be done, I mean, I think the sky's the limit. One of the things that's really exciting about, for example, Utah's sandbox, I think of sort of a corollary in the tech context. You know, we have all these new sort of services that are tech-based that we use today that we take for granted, you know, having gro groceries come to your doorstep or, you know, being able to hire a car through the press of a button that comes and picks you up and takes you somewhere. So these are all innovations that I certainly couldn't have imagined until they came into being. And I think the hope for regulatory reform is that we will see those kinds of or that level of innovation in the legal space where we have new ways of, of addressing, solving and goodness, hopefully preventing legal problems that we can't even begin to imagine today. And so I guess for, for law students, my own view is that just understanding that these dynamics exist, sort of I, the, the first step is admitting that you have a problem, <laughs> right? And in the legal context, I think that's really true. And I've had this experience, you know, I'm a, I'm a law professor. I work with law students every day. And what I've noticed is that when I introduce Juice ideas about the challenges that we face in the access to civil justice context. Students are, you know, appalled, engaged, want to do something about it, but just had no idea. And so I think that's really sort of step one is bringing more people to the table to engage in this conversation. Throughout a couple of the answers now, we've touched on legal tech-based solutions. Can you give us some insights about how legal tech is coming in to alleviate the civil justice gap in some way? So when it comes to legal technology, my, my own view is that we're in a, a very nascent stage. There's a lot of talk and buzz about legal tech, but the reality of the industry, and this is because UPL, right? This is because there are you know, limitations on non-lawyer and tech-based services. 
the vast majority of technology that exists, legal technology, if we if that things that are in that bucket are for law firms, right? So research or you know, site checking, brief drafting sort of services that create efficiencies in the corporate legal market. A challenge in the sort of everyday consumer sector is that we talked about earlier how most people who have civil justice problems don't understand them as legal, right, Um, as needing legal interventions. And some research that's been done recently about legal technology for the consumer market is that many of the tools that exist require you to identify what your legal problem is in order to even find the tool. And so one of the things that we're really lacking is sort of diagnostic tools, you know, something where you can type into, say, you know, a a search engine, mold in bathroom, you know, what do I do, right? And so something that will walk you through identifying, okay, this is a a legal problem that has, and there are different versions of steps that you could engage in to try to solve it. And that is really lacking right now. But again, I think Utah Sandbox creates a space to do that. And there is, I think, a big challenge when it comes to developing both legal technology and sort of more analog human-based, you know, non-lawyer services as much as the market may be able to generate new ways of providing legal services, I think that when it comes to the needs of very low income people, um, such as people who are involved in debt collection cases or eviction cases, there's a real question about where you find economic value that the market would care about, that somebody would invest in to try to serve the needs of, of folks in those situations. And so I think that one of the things that we need, that we really need is public investment. And by that, I mean, government investment, nonprofit investment, you know, foundation, private sector foundation investment, you know, public interest driven programs that are aimed at solving the problems that face very low income populations. Because it's, it's hard to see for problems that face people because they have no money, how there would be sort of a way to, to commodify that. So the way that we frame the conversation throughout this podcast has seemingly been through limits, that lawyers might not be the best way to address the extent of the access to justice gap, and that it's important to supplement these problems or these holes with non-lawyer solutions or deregulation or tech solutions. But we've also framed the idea of civil justice gaps through one of a systemic problem that the lack of safety nets or the growing income inequality is really contributing to these gaps. And I guess my question is, are courts really the best means of addressing systemic issues on a case-by-case basis? And when did we discuss the idea of poverty law being one of legal in nature and not something that requires a legislative solution? So I think, you know, the issues that low income and vulnerable population space, I think, you know, sort of inevitably interface with civil law and obviously criminal law as well. One of the challenges that we see as, you know, there's sort of been an increase in economic inequality and a reduction in the in the social safety net and the, the thickness and robustness of the social safety net in, in most parts of the United States is that there's a this interesting dynamic that happens with courts and that they are the only entity in our three-part system of government that can't, in, in a lot of ways, can't say no, 
So if I want to come to court and file a lawsuit, I get to do that. There's some rules I need to follow about how I do that, the kind of paper that I use and the words it says on it. But by and large, courts have to take the cases that come to them, right? And so if the legislative and branches have sort of divested of providing social safety net programs and asking executive branch agencies to implement those programs, in some ways, a way to think about courts is that they really are, there are legal emergency rooms, and, you know, another way to think about it is I, I used to I used to think about this a lot. I don't represent people in state courts today, but I used to do it um, all the time. And it often felt to me that sort of a legal tool. So, for example, a protective order for someone who's you know facing abuse or violence. It often felt that the legal tool was this box that was very constrained and could only do certain things, it could only give someone a certain kind of remedy but that the problems that that act, that human being and their family system and friends and circle were facing sort of just were bursting out of the sides of that box because the legal tool itself that existed was simply not enough to address the myriad problems that they face. So this sounds very dire. Uh, it's pretty depressing. And it is because these are serious problems that, that have serious negative consequences for human life and well-being. But I think there's some positive stories that we can tell. And one of them connected to regulatory reform. And one of those is in the context of medical debt. So there's an organization at the University of Arizona called Innovation for Justice run by someone named Stacey Butler. And they are actually working in Utah to find ways for non-lawyers to be able to provide legal services in the context of medical debt. And as this pro this program is is currently, they're still in the program creation stage right now. The goal is to eventually create something that can go into the sandbox. But one of the things that Stacy and her team are finding is they wanted to address medical debt, which is a huge problem in Utah. A huge proportion of our consumer debt cases are medical debt. And this affects people from across the economic spectrum, right? Someone could be could be destroyed financially who was doing well by medical debt, just as someone who's low income can be negatively affected and not be able to pay those bills. And one of the things that Stacey and her team are finding is that by the time someone actually gets served with a medical debt lawsuit, it may just be too late to actually help them because they owe the money, right? It's done. There is no legal defense. And so what she and her team are looking at is finding ways when someone is having a medical problem, could a non-lawyer health worker be trained in such a way that they could do some preventative counseling upstream to say, hey, this treatment that you're getting is going to cost you money. Can we talk about getting ahead of creating a payment plan? Can we connect you with, to the extent there are you know, safety net or financial counseling resources, financial support, can we connect you with those now? So are there ways to sort of prevent the prob this social problem of medical debt from ever getting to the point where you need to be served with a lawsuit? And so that's the kind of like sort of creative interventions that I think hold a lot of hope for keeping people out of the courthouse doors. Well, those are all the questions that I had for you today. Professor Carpenter, thank you so much for your answers and for your time. We really appreciate you coming on briefly and talking to us today about access to justice issues. It has been such a joy to meet you and talk with you. Thank you so much. This has been Briefly, a production of the University of Chicago Law Review. 
follow us on Twitter at YouShyLrev and like us on Facebook. You can find more episodes of Briefly wherever you get your podcasts, from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon for another episode of Briefly, Season 4.